0: So we're going to pick it up now, moving through the text, verses 18 to 23. If you would read along with me, we will read, and then as is our custom, we'll pray, and then we will get to work. Verse 18, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes, have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to die on the cross, to provide the true cure, the true remedy for everything that ails us. Father, we look to you for your healing. We look to you for your blessing and your favor in our lives. And Lord, we know that that does not come apart from Jesus. And so, Father, help us to see Christ, to see him as he truly is. And Lord, help us to draw from him and to follow him as we pursue your healing and your grace and your mercy in our lives. Help us to make Jesus the center and help us to follow. Open our hearts and our minds, Lord, to see what you're trying to say to us in this text. We pray your spirit would illuminate the text, that you'd shine upon the word and give us understanding of what it is that you are saying to us this morning. So we ask that you please speak, Father, speak to us through this scripture. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. That day, they needed leadership. They needed leadership, and specifically, they needed a chief to follow. At about 5 a.m. in the morning, as the early newspaper men were rising, as the old-fashioned milkmen were getting up and getting ready to make their milk delivery routes, a strange phenomenon occurred in which all the stray dogs in the city began to bark and run chaotically through the streets. The horses began to pull at their carts that were strapped to their backs. Later, witnesses would recall it was the most bizarre phenomenon. They didn't know what to make of it. They thought it was just something strange that was happening that was spooking the animals. But beyond that, they didn't give it too much more thought. They should have, because about 12 minutes later at 5.12 a.m., an earthquake struck so powerful and so severe. Buildings were shaken, some collapsed, Others ran out into the street as the uh, earthquake began to shake. Falling masonry from the different buildings fell upon some of the individuals who had rushed out into the streets. They were struck and wounded, and many of them lay lying there in the streets where they had been hit by falling bricks and falling masonry. Gas lines were ruptured. Water lines were ruptured. Stoves, old-fashioned heating stoves in homes, were tipped over. Fires began to erupt. The earthquake registered 7.9 on the Richter scale and San Francisco began to burn. It was 1907. It was the year of innovation. One of the brand new technologically advanced features that had just been installed to help protect the city was a brand new high pressure high, wa- high pressured water fire hydrant system. The old system had relied upon a series of cisterns, hidden wells dug throughout the city, hidden beneath the streets that were accessed by manholes, but they now had a high-pressure water system. Red fire hydrants dotted the city, and it was really simple, the firemen thought. We will simply rush to wherever the fires are, we will hook up our fire hydrants, and we will begin to put out the fires that have broken out as a result of this earthquake. But the earthquake had ruptured the fire hydrant system. Well, no problem, thought the firemen. We'll just draw water from the old system, the hidden underground water cisterns. But unfortunately, the man they needed to achieve that task, Fire Chief Henry Sullivan, was one of the first casualties as a result of the earthquake. A falling chimney had crushed him in his bed. And so what ensued as the firemen began rushing frantically throughout the city to save the people of San Francisco in 1907, was pandemonium. It was chaos. Fires were breaking out everywhere. They they couldn't tell where the cisterns were because the only man that knew where the cisterns were happened to be the chief, and he had been killed tragically in the first instances of the earthquake. And so the firemen had no leadership. They didn't know what it was that they were supposed to do. They observed the fire breaking out, and they had no water with which to fight the fire. So they began tearing down buildings in a mad, frantic rush to create a fire break so as the fire burned, it wouldn't jump to other buildings. Well, the ladder crews stood around haphazardly aghast as demolition crews began tearing down buildings that they themselves hadn't put up their ladders to check to make sure there were no survivors inside the demolition guys began bringing in heavy equipment while the paramedics hadn't fully evacuated the injured people out of the streets. 3,000 people died that day, but it's expected that less than 700 died as a result of the earthquake and the fire. An astonishing 2,300 people are presumed to have been crushed by falling rubble or crushed by heavy equipment as it was driven through the streets. 2300 people looking back on it one fireman said we just didn't know what to do and we just needed our chief it was a blight that would not leave the city of san francisco people began to look at the city once considered the shining shining diamond diamond on the bay the jewel of california They considered it as dangerous and not safe, and eventually their sister city, 300 miles to the north, Los Angeles, would become the capital city of California, even though the capital really resided in San Francisco. We just needed a chief. We just needed leadership. That's ultimately what this text in Matthew is talking about. Jesus is on a mission to heal the world. He wants to heal us. He needs to be the chief. Look with me at the text. He says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples Followed him. Now, there are two verses, one at the beginning and one at the very end of this text, that sort of provide bookends for what's going on here in our passage this morning. Number one, it says, When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. That's in verse 18. Now, jump down to verse 23. He says, When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. So, there's this picture of this boat. A crowd shows up and Jesus sees the crowd coming and he immediately decides he's going to get in this boat and he's going to leave and he's going to go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He's going over to the to the to Gassarin, where these Gadarene demoniacs are. We're going to read about, we're going to talk about them in a few weeks time. But he's getting ready to make his way over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He sees these people coming and the text is very specific when Jesus saw the crowd around him. So as a result of the crowd showing up, Jesus is deciding to Baal. And then verse 23 concludes, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. So this whole dialogue, this whole exchange that we're about to read about happens within the bookends of Jesus seeing a crowd and deciding to get out of Dodge, to get on the boat and to leave. Now this is significant. This is very significant. Jesus came basically to do two things. Number one, he came to heal the world of its sin. He came to take away our sins so that we could have healing. That's the number one reason he came. Die on the cross. Bear our penalty. Die in our place. Save us from ourselves. Number two, he came to get people to follow him. He came to make disciples. So we encounter this text here With a bit of peculiarity. It strikes us a little weird. He's healing everyone, he's performing miracles, he's casting out demons. The crowds here that the getting is good up in Galilee, and they're dragging all of their sick loved ones, however they can get them up there, dragging them on carts, carrying them on their shoulders, carrying them on their backs, taking everybody they know that has a disease or a sickness or an infirmity of some kind, putting them in front of Jesus so that Jesus can heal them and they can be rescued from whatever it is that ails them. The crowds are coming, and you and I would too. Modern medicine affords us a great deal of privilege, Because we have Royal the Hospital right here in town, we don't have to go anywhere to get an immediate diagnosis. Now, some of us may have injuries or illnesses that require specialists, and we might have to go to Vancouver or another more specialized hospital. But for the most part, everything we need to be treated medically, we can get it right here in the city. It's not like that in the first century. If they want to be healed, well, there is no hospital. If they want to be treated, well, the medicine in this day and age is very, very archaic. It's very, very uninformed. I mean, you look at what you have in your medicine cabinet. Tylenol. Some of us probably have antibiotics left over from the last infection that we had. Some of us are probably hoarding a whole sea of prescription medicine in our, in our cabinet that we didn't use from the last time we were sick. You look in the basic medicine cabinet in your bathroom, and you have enough medicines there to cure 99 point of the st- 99% of the stuff that undoubtedly killed people in this day and age. You go to work, you sprain your ankle, there's no ibuprofen, and you got to work. So you're getting up the next day and working on a sprained ankle. You break your arm, there's no doctor to set it. That arm is most likely going to heal, deformed, and not work properly the rest of your life. It's going to hurt, and there's not going to be any Tylenol to take the edge off the pain. Sickness and disease were much, much, much more of a problem in this day and age. So guess what? They find a miracle man. They find a guy that can cure them. And they flock to him. He sees them coming. And he says, I'm out of here. And he jumps in the boat. Now, I want you to put yourself in that situation for a moment. It would be exactly like Royal the Hospital saying, well, there's a lot of people here. And the hospital sprouts legs and decides to up and walk away. Now, we're all young and relatively healthy in the room here, so that's like, oh, that would be quite a sight to see, all right? That would be something to check out. We're not uberly concerned about it because we're mostly healthy but if we lost the hospital it would be a major problem it really would we go back to the dark ages of trying to treat wounds and injuries I don't know how to set the broken bone in your arm how many people you figure in Kamloops break their arms on a daily basis or a weekly basis I don't know how to treat whatever that infection is that you got I mean I guess there are some plants out there somewhere that we can cut and like make a, like sort of a, a rub or something we can put on it. I don't know. I'm just going to go to Walmart and buy some sort of prescription thing there or get some sort of over-the-counter topical treatment and slap it on there and we'll be good. See, we take it for granted, but they didn't. So when Jesus sees the crowd, he says, I'm out of here. That's concerning to the crowd. Because for the first time, they've gotten to see something that you and I take for granted. They have received a blessing that is largely not thought about and not appreciated by us in this room. They see that blessing walking away in the same way that it would shock us to just see Royal Inland Hospital closing its doors. It shocks them. Jesus sees the crowds and he throws one leg over the gunwale getting into the boat. He has an interaction with two guys as he's getting into the boat. One says, I'll go with you wherever, and uh, he has an interaction with him. The other guy says, I would like to go with you wherever. Let me just take care of my dead father. He has an interaction with him. And then the verse concludes in verse 23, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Now, verse 23 says, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Verse 18 says, when he saw the crowd, he decided to bail out. So I want you to take those two verses and put them side by side here. It is not that Jesus is shunning the company of people. It's not like he's some sort of introvert and he's just shy and withdrawn and closed into himself and doesn't want to talk to people. That's not Christ at all. There's something about the fact of the crowd pursuing him that makes him uncomfortable. The disciples follow him. He's happy to have them come along. The crowd, not so much. And that's the first thing we need to see as we look at our text this morning. The crowd makes Jesus wary. He is wary of the crowd. And in fact, if you go back and you look at all four of the Gospels, you will find instances in all four of them in which on various occasions the crowd would come, he would see the coming crowd, and he would pull back. It's not that he was pulling back from his disciples, the guys who truly followed him, it was that he was leery of the masses. Jesus would see the masses coming, and you'd pull back. Why? Well, on a couple of different occasions in the Gospels, we read about that they wanted to take him, and on at least two separate occasions, they wanted to forcibly set him up as a political leader. Not just their leader, but as a national figure, a king. King of Jerusalem, king of the city, or king of Israel, or perhaps... Maybe in their wildest expectations, somebody to challenge the power of Rome, to confront Caesar. Now they have their ideas, and Jesus has his ideas. And so when the crowd comes, Jesus withdraws, not from his disciples, but from the crowd. Now I want you to see something here. Church, look at this. Jesus came take away our sins and to get people to follow him. Crowd shows up, he bails. What that means is the nature of our following him makes the difference between whether he chooses to walk with us or to not walk with us. How we follow Jesus, how we walk with Jesus makes all the difference in terms of whether Jesus is walking with us. The crowd is there, they're not his disciples, and he leaves. Now, Jesus is ordering his life. Paul makes this statement in 1 Corinthians, bad company corrupts good morals. One of the themes that you find All throughout the book of Proverbs is that the people we choose to make our friends, the people that we choose to live life with, they will influence us. They will have an influence on us. And Jesus is not like you and me in the sense that he is not going to be influenced like you and I are influenced. As the son of God, he is not going to be influenced by the crowd, but he sees the crowd and he's wary of the crowd because he knows the crowd isn't there to follow him. They're there to receive whatever blessings he can give. They're there to receive whatever miraculous healings he can give, but they are not there to truly follow him. And knowing that, he makes a conscientious decision to order his time, order his life, and order his activities elsewhere. Jesus has a limited amount of time on this earth, and he is making very clear decisions about whom he is going to spend his time with. Now, don't hear me saying that Jesus is pulling back from the masses. That's not what he's doing. But when he sees the masses growing, when he sees the multitudes coming, rather than choosing to be unduly influenced or to have his time unduly consumed by them, he makes the conscientious decision to walk away to the other side. That, I think, is a powerful word of wisdom, particularly to us in this room, as we make conscientious decisions about whom we're going to allow to influence us, about how we're going to spend our time, and about how we're going to walk. Jesus walks away from the crowds. So if you've ever pondered long at the pool of popularity, if you've ever thought how great it would be to be famous, if you've ever wanted to be recognized or celebrated, to become some sort of a celebrity, you'll know that what Jesus is doing here challenges that. He was a celebrity and he shunned the crowds. He was well-loved and adored. And he walked away from that adoration. Which means that his goal in life, the thing that brought him happiness and the thing that brought him pleasure, was not being well-liked by the multitudes or the masses around him. He clearly comes to serve them, but he is not going to walk with them. So we're here today And the question becomes for us immediately, Jesus is our example. The way we walk, the way we choose to spend our time, the people we choose to hang out with, I mean, it even comes down, maybe to even the profession that we're in. Are we making choices in which we follow Jesus, we walk with Jesus, we exalt His kingdom? In his gospel or are we making choices that exalt something else Jesus doesn't leave the disciples but he does leave the crowd so the question for you is are you in the crowd or are you a disciple so you're sitting out there this morning you're probably asking yourself okay well what's a disciple that's what the middle of the text deals with Look in verse 19. He has an exchange with two individuals. One of them, we don't really know anything about him. Makes a statement, verse 21, another of the disciples said to him. Now, verse 21 identifies this guy, this guy that has his father he wants to bury, as a disciple. Now, the first word of verse 21 says another. So, another disciple. So, you go back to verse 19, and it says, a scribe came up and said to him, Now, when we encounter the scribe, our gut reaction is to think he's not truly a disciple. The scribes, as most of you in this room are familiar with, they are sort of the adjutants to... Uh, The Pharisees and and the priests, they're sort of in that religious superstar crowd that shuns Jesus, that looks down upon Christ's ministry. So when we hear scribe, the sort of knee-jerk reaction is saying, eh, it's not a sincere guy. This guy isn't on the level. He's not on the up and up. There's something kind of crooked about him. But verse 21 says, another of the disciples, is going to go on to describe an encounter that Jesus has with somebody else, but it says, another of the disciples. You read that back to verse 19, and what we can conclude is this scribe, though his profession puts him in the company of people who do not truly value Christ, do not truly seek to exalt him or his ministry or his gospel. This scribe works with those people, but he is not one of those people. He is a legitimate disciple. His question to Jesus, he doesn't even ask a question, he just makes a statement. He says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Doesn't matter where you go, I'm in it, I'm with you. Now the question before us today is, what does it take to be a disciple of Jesus? And as Jesus begins to answer that question, we're going to see two things here. Number one, you've got to know what's involved. And number two, you've got to be aware of the fact that it will cost you. Look at what he says here. Number one, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. It doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter what you're doing. I'm in it. I'm with you. He's a legitimate disciple, and he's making the claim to discipleship. Jesus is getting in a boat. He's got one leg over the side of the boat. He's getting ready to hop in because he sees the crowd. This guy sees Jesus making his getaway, and he says, I want to be a part of that. So he's wanting to jump in this boat. He's wanting to be with this crew of people that follow Jesus. He says to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus' response is, foxes have holes... And birds of the air have nests. He talks about the reality that even the most basic animals on this planet, foxes and birds, they have some place to go at the end of the day. They've got some place where they can rear and raise their young. They've got a home. And his statement is, they've got a home. But look at what he says here. The son of man, that's a reference to Jesus himself. He doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. You want to follow me wherever I go A scribe 's got a cushy job high paying, not a lot of effort. Now, he writes all day he 's got a desk job he 's probably got soft hands, okay <laughs> The rest of the world around him. this is an agrarian culture. This is a farming community they 've got rough hands they 've got thick calluses on the palms of their hands they 've got coarse, thick. you want to imagine sort of like denim type of clothing, you know, heavy-duty clothing that's intended to take a beating and, and uh, you know, to hold up to the elements, to the sun and the rain. And they got to go out and work in the fields. they got to till up rocks. they got to drag rocks out of their fields all day. And, and there's no, like, tractors. There's no, like, modern uh, amenities like what farmers today have. This is hardcore, hands-on, work in their farm just so they can live. Now, he's a scribe. He's got, he's got money. He probably wears comfortable clothing. Slacks, nice shirt, maybe a tie. You know, he, he doesn't uh, go out and work in the dusty fields. You know, and that's a privilege in and of itself because, you know, these guys came home filthy at the end of every day. And they don't have a lot of free time. There's not a lot of leisure time. It's not like they've got to take baths every day. Well, the scribe, he's got lots of leisure time. He's not filthy, but he's probably got the time if he wants to. He can take a shower. He can take a bath a fairly regular basis. I mean, he's got a nice job. He's probably got a nice home. He's probably got a home that he can come to at the end of the day. It's not a one-bedroom shack with all of his family trying to live inside of it. It's probably maybe a two-room shack or a three-room shack. He's got a little bit of extra coin. The Pharisees are the highest-paid people in the land, and they, uh, the Pharisees and the the priests are the highest-paid people in the land, and they depend upon the scribes to assist them. So you know they're well taken care of. They're sort of number three in the financial pecking order. So he's got security, financial security. In a day and age in which literacy was abysmal, this guy can read and write, which makes him a valuable commodity. Jesus' response to him is, I don't have anywhere to live. Mr. Scribe, Mr. Financially Secure, Mr. Retirement. You want to follow me. It's going to challenge the way you provide for yourself. It's going to challenge the way you save money. And in fact, it's going to rip all security away from you altogether. Farmers, shepherds, the bottom of the society, They still had a home. They still had a place they could come back to. They still had title to certain property. And Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the creator and the owner of the universe, says to him, I don't own anything. I don't have anywhere to lay my head down at night. And if you want to follow me, that's what it looks like. So if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, I want you to consider whatever it is that you look to to provide security, be it your retirement plan, be it your job, uh, your inheritance. And I want you to understand that following Jesus to treasure Christ will challenge that. Example number two. Next guy here, verse 21. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, now look at how he addresses him. Lord, clearly a disciple, he understands who Jesus is. Let me first go and bury my father. The sort of impression we get here is Jesus is throwing his leg over the side of the boat. He's about to get in the boat and sail off to the other side. The scribe runs up, he sees what's happening, he's like, I'll go with you wherever you go, I'll follow you wherever you go. And he's like, well, I've got nowhere to go. I've got nowhere to lay my head down at night. And the second guy kind of maybe overhears that and he says, whoa, this is going to be challenging. He says, I I will follow you wherever you go. He hears the command. He hears the demand. He understands the cost. And he says, all right, I'm prepared to make that decision. I'm prepared to make that sacrifice. But I need to look after my father. He is either, and we don't know this for a fact, he is either about to die or has just died. Either way, there's a funeral that's almost imminent. And as the son of the family, it's going to be his responsibility, according to Old Testament law, to look after that funeral. Let me bury my father. And then, I will look for all of my security, I will look for all of my well-being, I will completely surrender myself into your hands and follow you wherever you go. I just got this one last thing I got to take care of. And it's important. Christ statement to him in verse 22, follow me. And it's in the imperative. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. He calls him Lord. Lord, I'll come. I just got to take care of one thing and it's an important thing. I got to look after my father's funeral. And Christ's statement is, follow me. Follow me. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. And that's obviously a reference to both spiritual and physical death. Let dead people who don't know the Lord, let people who are perishing and going to hell, let people who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ tend to the things of this world. You follow me. Follow me. Now that's pretty significant. On the one hand, he's talking about what it will cost to follow him. On the other hand, he's saying following him supersedes everything else. Now in this passage, there's a couple of things going on here. Following Jesus, he has a mission. He's going to heal the world. He's going to die for the sins of the world and he's going to bring healing to everyone. There is a man and there is his mission There is a person, and there is the path that he is walking. There is a suffering, and there is a sweetness. We read this account, we think, man, it seems like a perfectly reasonable request to bury your father. And Jesus' response to him is, follow me and leave the dead alone. Let the dead bury their own dead. That seems in your face. What I want you to hear this morning, when you hear the command in verse 22, follow me, I want you to hear two things. There are two things being said there, not one thing. We hear Jesus say, follow me, and we hear the words, follow, go, achieve, do. But he's not saying, follow. That's not all he's saying. He's saying, follow me. There are two things. Like I said, there's the mission, and then there's the man. There's the path he walks, and then there's the person. There's the suffering that's involved, but then there's the sweetness of his fellowship, of being with Jesus. I don't want you to hear one thing. We read this text, and we immediately just hear the word follow, and we don't consider the beauty of, of the person we're following we don't look to the me we hear follow but we forget about the me jesus says follow me follow me so i want you to hear two things here now let's look at this he's on a mission he's going to save the world he's going to heal everyone what of what sickness death suffering which means that the mission of bringing the cure the mission of bringing the gospel supersedes the concerns that come about as a result of the curse the man is either about to die or is dead why why is he about to die or why is he dead because he's under the curse to bury him is a necessity but to bring healing is more necessary and so Let's not push this text, another thing I want, I want to draw your attention to, let's not push this text further than it absolutely needs to go. It makes a statement here to the scribe, leave all your financial well-being behind and follow me. It makes a statement to the other disciples, says, leave your dad, whatever's going on there, forget about him, and follow me. We read that, and we consider that what Jesus is saying is absolutely beyond all shadow of doubt. It's never right to have a funeral, and it's never right to think about our financial future. That would be pushing Christ's words further than I think he even intends for them to be understood. How do I know this? In Matthew nineteen don't flip there, just listen. In Matthew nineteen twenty one, Jesus encounters a rich, young ruler, a lawyer, or a wealthy man of some form. The wealthy man says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? He says, you know the commandments, you know, honor your father, your mother, and blah, 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 don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, it, so forth, and so on. He says, I'm perfect, I've done all of those, which we all know is a lie man was obviously high on himself, did not have a real understanding of where he was at. So Jesus, knowing his heart, the text is clear, knowing his heart makes the statement to him, okay, you want to go to heaven, sell everything you have, give all your money to the poor, then come and follow me, and you will have treasure in heaven. And the text says that that man went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had a lot of money. So he makes the statement to that guy, give everything away and follow me. But then there's another passage in Luke chapter 19. Jesus is walking along and he encounters this tax collector, this little tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus hears the gospel message and he makes the statement, Lord, the half of my goods I will give to the poor. Not all of my goods, not 100% of my goods, but 50%. So the rich young ruler, he thinks he's awesome. And he says, I'm awesome. And God says, give everything you have away. And he's like, oh, I can't do that. This Zacchaeus, this text collector, he says, I love this good news, this gospel that I'm hearing. I will give 50%. He says, I will give 50% of what I have to the poor. I will give the half of my goods. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold, four times over. And Jesus' response to him is, today salvation has come to this house. Now, in both passages, in one case, Jesus demands that that person gives 100%. In the other case, Jesus doesn't make any demands on the man. He freely offers 50%. So you got 100% and you got 50%. What's the point? The point is it doesn't have anything to do with your money, how much you have or how much you give to the poor or any of that sort of thing. The point is that Jesus can see straight into your heart and he knows your idol. He knows what competes In your heart for affection for Him. In other words, He wants you to love Him. He wants to be the most beautiful, the most precious, the most amazing thing in your life. He wants to be the sweetness that you crave. It's not about whether you give 100%, it's not about whether you give 50%, it's not about whether or not you have to walk away from your home and your 401k and your retirement and everything in its entirety. And it's not necessarily that you don't ever have the right or the privilege or the need to bury your father. The point of this text is he should come first. He's walking away from the crowd because they don't really put him first. And he's challenging people who want to be his disciples that if they really want to be his disciple, he has to be first. Which means that although none of us are required to go out and sell our homes and live like poor people on the street in order to honor Christ, for some of us, that might be what He's calling us to do. And while we're all supposed to go out and bury our Father, and while that's appropriate, there might be times in which following Jesus will lead us into circumstances, as bizarre as they may be, in which coming home to bury your father might not be the best thing to do. The issue is not the behavior. The issue is not the action. The issue is, will he be number one in your life? And that's what Jesus is talking about. If you want to follow him, if you want to be his disciple, if you want to be one of those guys that gets in the boat, that gets to ride with Jesus, he is number one. He orders his life in such a way as to exalt the Father. And we are called to order our lives in such a way so that we exalt him. Thomas Aquinas Catholic theologian commenting on Aristotle, the philosophy of Aristotle, his metaphysics, made the statement in his prologue to uh, his, his theology. Thomas Aquinas says, as the philosopher, and he's referencing Aristotle, as the philosopher says in the beginning of metaphysics, it is the business of the wise man to order. The reason for this is that wisdom is the highest perfection of reason, whose characteristic is to know order. Even if the sensory powers know something, absolutely. Nevertheless, it belongs to the intellect or the reason alone to know the order of one thing to another. Now, a twofold order is found in things. One, parts of a whole related to the whole. Uh Uh-oh. I'm lost. Parts of the whole related to the whole as parts of a house are mutually ordered one to another. The second order is that of things to an end. This order is of greater importance than the first. There's a little bit of verbiage there, let me explain it to you. What Aristotle, what, what Thomas Aquinas is saying about Aristotle, what Aristotle was originally saying, is that the wise man, in the same way when it comes to building a house, we have to pay attention to the foundation, build the walls and build the roof all in its proper place, all in its proper order in order to have a successfully built house. In the same way that a builder would order his house, a wise man must order his life, the parts to the whole. And then Aristotle goes on to say, the most important order is the parts of the whole related to the end for which it is intended. Now, we're all in this room called to pursue Jesus as the sweetest thing of our lives. The end towards which we are called is a wonderful paradise with the most amazing man to be our best friend forever. That's the end towards which we are striving, which means if we have that end in view, it absolutely will challenge not only the way we live our life today, but the way we order our lives as we seek to live tomorrow and the next day and every day thereafter. Now it would be relatively easy for me to walk through this passage and to say that Jesus is saying, follow him. And what that means is you put him as number one and everything else has to be ordered around that one central thing. And then to say to you, as you go to work tomorrow or as you Uh, hang out with your next door neighbor or as you are interacting with somebody you know in the grocery store. Find opportunities to love them, to bless them, to minister to them. But you know what? I don't think that's really the thrust of the text before us. Christ didn't say to the scribe and He didn't say to the other disciple, as you just go on about your life, be sure to remember me and to tell people about me. What He challenged them to do was to Follow Him, which in both cases would require a radical reorganization of their life. Which means, to apply this text to ourselves this morning, rather than saying, just as you go about your normal daily business, try to find an opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus, try to find an opportunity to love someone, I'd like to suggest something else to you that I think would be more in spirit with what we're looking at. Don't just talk about Jesus as you go about your normal business. Follow Jesus. Which might mean, and I think does mean, and should mean for many of us in this room, that we step back for a second and we think about what we can do to tell someone else about Christ, to love someone else In the name of Christ, for the pleasure that that will bring us. Now, Jesus, he is our model. He is the epitome of perfections. He lived in light and glory unapproachable before he became a man. He became a man. Why? For the joy that was set before him to die on the cross to save us from our sins, that he could be the firstborn among many brothers. What that means is that the God of the universe was willing to suffer and die. Because rather than just being God in heaven, and that was a happy and amazing thing, he pursued our happiness. And he placed our joy in his joy, which means he was prepared and willing, and even, according to Hebrews, eager to suffer, because through that suffering, he would know a deeper and a higher joy, which means most of us, we go through our lives, and we think, okay, as I have opportunity, I might tell someone about Jesus, I might love someone, I might do a good deed, but just stop and think about what that walk really is then. It means you're walking according to whatever you desire. It means you're walking according to whatever brings you joy or whatever brings you happiness. And it doesn't mean that you're actually stepping back and thinking, what can I do to bring myself maximum joy and maximum happiness? What do I really need to do to be deeply, wonderfully happy? Here's what you need to do. You need to take deliberate planned steps to meet people in their life wherever they are. And guess what? They're not going to be where you are, which means you have to reorient your life in such a way. You've got to plan to take steps in such a way that you will meet those people, whomever they may be, that you could love them or serve them or bless them or, God willing, lead them Jesus, knowing and believing that if they were to come to faith, and if you had the privilege of baptizing them, no longer as just your acquaintance or your neighbor or the guy that lives down the street, but as your brother or your sister in Christ, knowing that you had made an eternal difference in your life, in their life that that would make an eternal difference of joy in your life. Because Jesus is all about happiness, but you'll know that following him, he goes through the suffering of the cross to bring the joy of his happiness, which means if we're gonna follow him, we've gotta think outside the box. We've gotta ask God, where are you really leading? God, who do you really want to minister to? God, who do you really want me to go and speak to? I have struggled with this myself over the last year. In my line of work, guess what? I'm like a scribe. I sit at a desk all day, I wear soft clothes. I don't have thick calluses on my hands. The people I work with, for the most part, they're saved. Ryan, Kyla, Levi, that was meant to be a joke, but whatever, <laughs> laugh. So the people I work with are going to heaven. Who do I get to tell about Jesus? What opportunities do I have to share the gospel? Not many. And I could say, you know what? I'm doing what God has called me to do. I'm working this job. I'm serving as a pastor. I put together these sermons on a weekly basis. I lead these Bible studies. But what would bring me even more joy? And what has brought me incredible joy in the past? is leading people to Jesus. I got a letter from Steve Hardy in the mail two weeks ago. Which kind of freaked me out, because I, you know, I see him all the time, so it's, why are you writing me this letter? Open it up, and uh, it has his, it's his old dentistry stationery, and he writes, Josh, I'm writing this on stationery for two reasons. One, I wanted you to know who it was in case you couldn't read my handwriting. And two, I'm trying to get rid of all of this leftover stationery from when I was a dentist. So I'm like, oh, okay, you know, if <laughs> I'm reading along. And he basically went on for about a paragraph or so to say how grateful he is that he knows Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And he specifically wanted to express gratitude to me for leading him to Jesus. I baptized him on May 6th, 2009. I've got the date written in my journal. So we're a couple of years after the fact now. And, you know, the joy and the bliss and the happiness of that moment has faded. He writes me a letter saying, I can never thank you enough. Do I feel happy? Yeah. Am I filled with joy? Yeah. Do you have any idea how many hours I've spent driving back and forth to Logan Lake? Do you have any idea how many nights I've spent eating drive through fast food because I'm trying to rush out there to get out there by 6 (laughs) o'clock? It's a lot. I haven't actually counted. I don't know. But there's been a lot of effort there. And I'm happy to do it because I know that for all of the toil and all the effort to go through all of that stuff, there's a day coming in which I will stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and Steve will be standing next to me. And in a very real way, that brings me way more joy than sitting at home and watching Survivor, sitting at home, watching whatever TV program, you all know I love the Dallas Cowboys. They played at 10 a.m. this morning. It was actually televised. I'm not gonna lie. Thought crossed my mind. I'm gonna call in sick. <laughs> That's idolatry, okay? Because the joy of speaking to you about knowing a greater joy. It's sweeter, it's better, it tastes more wonderful and watching Tony Romo whip up on the Detroit Lions. I want you guys to have that joy in your life. I want you to know that happiness. I want you to taste the sweetness of the Savior, and I want you to know that to taste the sweetness of the Savior, you will go through the suffering of the path he walks. You will suffer, but endure it, because it makes the sweetness that much sweeter in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. C.S. Lewis' wonderful book, Allegorizing the Christian Life. Lucy is having a conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And uh, she's talking about meeting Aslan the Lion. Now, if you're not familiar with the books, Aslan is sort of the Christ figure. He's sort of the representative, sort of fictional character in C.S. Lewis' book that represents Jesus. And so... They tell her, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the greatest lion. Susan says, oh, I I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mrs. Beaver replies, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees a knocking... They're either braver than most or just silly. So Lucy says, oh, well, then he isn't safe. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. I want you to know that following Jesus Christ isn't safe. We're going to see where he takes these guys in this boat next week. Following him isn't safe. It's tiresome. It'll require sacrifice. It'll require suffering. You will hurt. There will be days in which if you truly follow him, it will bring you pain. But it is so good on the backside. He isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Let's bow for a word of prayer.